Please see now episode 476, Warren Toomey interview, recorded on the 30th of September 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for the truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Thank you for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling, and Tom Jones is with me interviewing Warren Toomey today in this special BSD Now episode for you. Warren talks about his early days of BSD and Unix, his involvement in the Unix Heritage Society and all things old Unixes, old computers, you get the idea. Please enjoy this interview with Warren Toomey now. This week we have an interview with Warren Toomey from the Unix Historical Society and we're happy to have him on the show. Welcome. Hi Warren. Thank you very much. Hello, how are you going? And uh, since you haven't been on this show before, we give you the question that we ask everyone. How did you get started with BSD and or Unix? Ah, <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm an old fogey. Um, so we have to cast our minds back to 1982. I was in high school and I got invited to a summer school uh, over the break because in Australia we have a summer break. And uh, I went down to the University of Wollongong. And of course, Wollongong, now later I know they did one of the first ports of Unix. Um, and I got to play on the Unix system down there um, as, a, as a teenager. It was lots of fun. Um, and of course, it just was a computer at a terminal. I didn't know what it was at the time. So that was my first Unix experience. Okay, and from there, you sticked with Unix, as I can imagine? <laughs> so after that, um, two years later, I went to university and 1984 rocked up. And I said to people, hey, I know about this thing called Unix and it was lots of fun. And they said, yes, well, see this computer in a, in a cupboard with the window you can look in? That was our Unix system. We decommissioned it last year. And now we have a uh, PDP-10 running DEX system 20. Horrible, clunky, nothing elegant. And I had to put up with that for two years. And all the time I'm looking in this window going, I just want to play with that thing that I had so much fun with a couple of years ago. And I think this was one of the reasons why I got into the history of Unix. It was because there was this tantalizing thing that I just couldn't reach out and, and turn on and play with. And I had to put up with this horrible thing that was a bit more clunky and, you know, every file was different. If you had a, a Pascal file, you couldn't create it into a text file to edit with a text editor because every file had a suffix and only the appropriate tool could ed edit files with that suffix. Uh, but two years later, 1986, we got a Unix system back again and I was happy again. <laughs> okay. And what was the Unix system you got in, in 86? Uh, so it was a pyramid, if anyone can remember a pyramid, one of the early uh, RISC systems, um, a 90X. And the interesting thing about pyramid was they had integrated both the AT&T world and the BSD world. So you could either choose to live on the ATT side of things and get a sort of a system five uh, version of the world, or you could choose to log in and go to a, uh, a BSD style version of um, applications and tools and things like that. So whereas we would say PS AUXW on, of course, on the ATT side, you'd have to say PS minus EDALF to get the same result out of PS. Hmm. As a student, that must have made it an absolute nightmare to learn Unix. <laughs> Actually, we, we were all given the AT&T side to start with. 
And then about six months later, one of my uh, friends, one of my our tutors said, why haven't you come over to the BSD side? And it was like, ooh, the dark side, I can cross over. <laughs> and of course, it takes like, you it, get took, that a lot. it took three weeks to learn all of the different extra, you know, flags you had to put on the USB command, the, the BSD commands compared to the AT&T commands. But um, BSD was so much nicer than the AT&T um, applications. So I guess that's when I was hooked into the BSD side of the world. Do, do you have any idea how that was implemented? It sounds really complex they, to maintain They had um, symbolic links, they had environment variables, and somehow the shell would look at your environment variables and work out which part of the tree to pull up binaries from to to give you commands when you when you ran commands. And so when you wanted to switch between the system five and the BSD side, you just had to run a command in your shell? I think you changed a variable uh, logged out and logged back in again, or you know, in your in your dot profile or whatever, you would set the variable and it would choose what universe. They called them universes, so you were either in the AT&T universe or the BSD universe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then how did your, your Unix uh, journey continue after that? Um, uh, so I took a job. I, I graduated. Um, I did some system admin at the end of my um, university life and then went down to Canberra, uh, another uh, uh, city in Australia, um, and did research for them. And they needed uh, machines to set up and run, so we had sunboxes, and um, I played a lot with sunboxes at the time. One more Unix system. Yeah, more Unix systems. Another universe. Yeah, and of course, you have BSD again, yeah. Because um, SunOS, the early uh, versions of the operating system were definitely BSD-based. I still remember hmm. the day oh, they yeah. switched to Solaris, and I'm going, what are you thinking? Seriously, US, uh, BSD is so much nicer than going back to the AT&T style of things. And of course, all the listeners, I'm just thinking I'm going to get blowback because of all of the people who've gone, oh, but System 5 is so nice. And I'm going, no, you're wrong. It's not. <laughs> I, I think you're safe on it's a BSD podcast. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah totally. We take refugees. Can, uh, can you remember what the Sun Systems were? Uh, would have been Solar up Sonos 3.5, I think was the last version I was, was using. Yeah. I had a okay, Sun, cool. Sun 350 desktop uh, box, which was lovely. I mean, it wasn't even X Windows. It was whatever the uh, user interface. I can't even remember what it was called back then. But um, yeah. And this was a, at the time when 286s were around and 386s were just starting to come in. And then, of course, 386 BSD turned up. Um, and I've got a 386 box sitting on my desk, you know, well, at my home desk and going, oh, my God, I can get rid of MS-DOS. And I was running Minix at the time because I had to have a Unix system at home. And the only way to get hmm. a Unix system on, on a PC at the time was uh, you could buy PCIX or you could buy a few other things. But Minix, of course, was free. Well, cheap. Yeah, that's Telecom's yeah, so, uh, uh, legacy here. Yeah. So I cut over, I had Minix running for years and years and years and, and did a lot of helping with them, contributing to diagnostics and testing out, out tools and things. And then 386 BSD 0.1 turned up and I'm going, it's BSD, yay, and I've got proper memory <laughs> management and I can run X Windows on top of it and everything like that. Oh, it was just amazing. How did you become aware of um, 386 BSD? Uh, well, of course, it's we had Usenet. So, you know, this was before, double quotes, the internet. But 
there were news groups and you just subscribed and I was always looking at the Minix news group and then someone popped in and said, well, have you heard about this other thing called 386BSD, which is, you know, BSD running on top of commodity hardware. Yeah. So the word got around pretty quickly. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me because of this project I'm working on for next year um, with 386BSD and, and FreeBSD1, um, I picked up Dr. Dobbs' journal with the series by Bill Jolitz. And I always, I keep wondering how um, the open source and, well, I guess the, the free software Unix unices were discussed in media, because Usenet is one side of this, but did, did everyone reading these magazines just read Usenet all day so we didn't need this news? Because I don't see it appearing <laughs> in the magazines I have. Um, I think it was mostly Usenet. There were so many news groups. I mean, it was Usenet was like the Reddit or the whatever you have of today where... Um, you could post a question and you could would get an answer back, you know, within hours. Um, I mean, don't forget, we lived in Australia, though. I lived in Australia, so our connection to Usenet, it would often take 24 hours or more to get answers back. So you tended to be a little bit more, not off the cuff, you would actually spend a bit of time thinking about a question you would ask and, and you would get, you know, answers back eventually. We did feel like we lived at the end of the world living out here in Australia when we had Usenet. It was like... Everything would go through Melbourne and there was a single connection out from Melbourne to the rest of the world and it would be 24 to 48 hours round trip time. Can you remember how the the file system, the floppy disk images were distributed? You weren't pulling them from America. I can't imagine this. <laughs> um, yes, I think, I no, I think someone in, and of course this was also when it came out, it was the, beginning of the distribution of the internet in Australia as well. So we were starting to get to the point where we could FTP um, and pull files. So I'm pretty sure at the time I was lucky because I was at university. So the universities quickly set up um, reasonably fast connections, internet connections. So we could FTP to this place in Melbourne, which had fetched them all and sucked them back. And I think I can remember using Kermit or something to write the floppies out. Um, you know, from the files that I had on, on I, my, um, I'm sure I had a 30 megabyte or I'm pretty sure I had a 30 megabyte hard drive at the time. So it was lots of oh, okay, fun, a lot, 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 of, lot of pain as well. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> lots of pain. Um, so maybe just to switch gears slightly. Uh, so another question we ask all of our guests is about notable things they've done recently. Um, and I think maybe you have something to discuss there. <laughs> Well, the most notable thing is that I got married in June last year. So, so congratulations! congratulations. You, can, you can quite happily edit out. And um, I've gone from someone <laughs> who knew absolutely nothing about horses, because my wife rides competition horses dressage, to knowing how to um, uh, tack up, put you know all of the things on, and, and wash them, and clean them, and put them back in the stables, and everything like that. But you probably want a much more IT oriented <laughs> answer to your question. So I, I think the most notable things I've done in the past two years, um, I remember back at university, we did a compiler course, which was all the theory, you know, um, finite automata and uh, lexi uh, lexical analysis and semantic analysis, and we never actually wrote a compiler. So I thought, well, before I die as an IT person, you have to write at least one compiler. And the only way for it to be treated as a serious compiler is if it can compile itself. So I spent, uh, I think two years ago, I spent six months writing a compiler that can compile itself. 
lots of fun. And, and I, I, uh, it's all on GitHub, so if anyone wants to look it up, and every step of the way, so I think I've got about 60 steps. So you start from, you know, plus, minus, multiply, divide, um, you know, just evaluating expressions, you know, all the way up to a subset of the C language. Uh, what's the compiler you wrote called? Um, so if you look up a compiler writing journey or um, ACWJ on GitHub, uh, you should pretty uh, quickly find it. Okay, cool. That really sounds like a journey. Yeah, it was so much fun. Beginning to end. Um, hmm. And I tried because I was, I seriously hated the theory. I mean, the theory you need, but you can write a compiler without that much yeah. theory. Um, yeah, it was great fun. Hmm. Uh, and the, uh, go on, sorry, you go first. Yeah, sorry, I was, I was going to ask what architecture it targeted. Uh, well, of course, x86, because at the time it's the most common, you know, architecture. These days I probably do uh, RISC-V, I think, because that's such an interesting architecture. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of potential in there. And speaking of architectures, the other thing that I've done notably is to build CPUs out of discrete uh, TTL chips. Um, so rather than having a CPU on a, on a single chip, you buy 13 or 15 chips and you join them all together and there are registers and there is an ALU and you have a whole bunch of control logic. And at the end of the day, you've got your own architecture. And so this is called the CSC Von 8? So there are, there's a 4-bit uh, one called CSC V2, because it's version 2. Um, and I think it's only got 12 or 13 chips in it. Uh, discrete chips, we're talking oh. AND, like AND gates, OR gates, you know, a bit of RAM, a bit of ROM, and that sort of thing. Uh, but Von 8 is an 8-bit um, CPU with a Von Neumann architecture. So you actually have um, both the ROM and the RAM mapped into the same address space. Hmm, lots of fun. So what led you to want to build a CPU out of discrete parts? <laughs> Mainly because, again, it was one of these well, if I don't actually know how a computer works right down at the bottom, then how can I ever claim to be an IT person? You know, I, I mean, I've been a teacher for 30 years. I just retired and I taught, you know, everything. And I can remember my students, I would teach them Java in year one and they would go, well, okay, every computer in the world knows how to, you know, system.out.print. I go, no, 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 down at the bottom, they just know how to compare two numbers together and decide whether to go this way or that way. And the void between yeah. this, you know, one line that does a million things down to the lowest level is, is this gaping void. And students would go, oh, I, I did a sort algorithm. And you go, but you don't understand why it's such a bad algorithm because you don't know what's going on downstairs. So you've got to have the ability yeah. to know the high level, but you've also got to have the ability to know the nuts and bolts right down to the not to the transistors, maybe, but at least down to the to the logic. Yeah, what's happening in the machine yeah. and how is it yeah, actually processing that? Yeah. So if you if you were to return to teaching, would you want to try and teach using something this low level? Yes, absolutely. Yep. I actually did run some architecture courses, and we would get all the way down to playing with AND gates and OR gates, and uh, it was lots of fun. Um, there is a textbook. I think it's called From NAND to Tetris. Um, which, yes. yes, you would have heard of, which does this journey from building like an ALU out of gates. And then once you have a level achieved, 
you then simulate it and then you do the next level up and then you do that as a simulation and you do the next level up. So you get to all the way through, you get to build things like a compiler and an operating system. And then you get to the point where you have a, a fully working computer that you've effectively built from the ground up. It's a fantastic book. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. <clears throat> so I have a, I have a book. I mean, books may be generous because it's only 50 pages. Um, and it's called the PDP eight class project and it's by Tom Almy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Tom did was, um, he taught an architecture course to, I think it's triple E students where they built a PDP eight on an FPGA yep. and then it was a group project. And so part of them would write the, um, different components of the processor. And then one of them wrote an assembler. Uh-huh. And so they had the specifications they had to meet. Yep. Uh, and that, that seemed like a really interesting course, but having dealt with CS students recently, I think that would be very overwhelming. <laughs> um, I don't know. And his, his book is, <laughs> his book is interesting because it is what the project was and how it works, but also how the students responded to it. Mm. And it seemed like a nice, um, uh, a nice outline of what you can do and how well this might work. I, I think, I mean, IT and everything has evolved. We now have, you know, um, processes with multiple cores, superscalar, you know, branch prediction and so much. And going back to a, a CPU like the PDP-8 or the PDP-11 or some of the early CPUs where it was so much simpler to understand how they worked. There was, you know, it was less of less optimization and you know these days trying to wrap your heads around everything is just crazy there's so much underneath the hood these days it makes it really hard to understand yeah, what's abstracted going on away but i i think th- thankfully you don't have to you don't need to know everything i mean you don't need to know about uh, branch prediction to know like to read disassembly for a program no there are cases where you do um and to look at performance you might have to learn all of these cpu internals to figure out what the processor can tell you, but you can also skip loads of this. So we've managed to keep interfaces reasonably clean yep. and hide all of the, the horrors underneath. Yep. I think you need to have some cognizance, some shallow understanding of there are pitfalls, there are things underneath that you may not know of, but be prepared that when one of these rears its ugly head and bites you, then you then have to go, well, now I've got to go down the rabbit hole and, and find out a bit more about this thing. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I think it's also a reason why these embedded platforms are so popular, because they are still simple enough that you can actually understand them. And they don't have these big, huge abstractions in there. And the architecture is way simpler, at least in many of them, um, to actually tinker with the hardware more. <laughs> I, this is gonna, I'm going to sound terribly old fashioned. And my students used to say that I was very black and white. And the reason for that was I would I live on a, a terminal, I live on an 80 by 25 terminal. When someone says, what's your IDE? I go, well, it's always VI, of course, isn't it? This black not, even, not even VIM, it's VI. <laughs> and, and I look at Arduinos and uh, I think, I have to install a, how many gigabytes worth of GUI just to write some C code? And surely I've, there's got to be a way to, for me, as, as the person who I am, just get away, get rid of all of this Visual Studio stuff and I, can't I just... Just give me a VI editor and a compiler and I can create a binary and I can flash it out to the Arduino. I'd be so much happier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which brings us right back into uh, the Unix Historical Society. Ah. So can you explain what that is for people who have never heard about it and how you came to found it in the first place? Yes. 
Um, but can I, I might even get you to ask me that question again because it's the Unix Heritage Society. Oh, That's sorry. That's all right. Even um, a couple of people. Heritage Hysterical. To, yes. Or the Unix Hysterical Society, perhaps. Heritage Society. That's what yeah. I always call it. <laughs> it's heritage, yeah. It, it definitely is one that we have now. So do you want to ask me that question again, or I'll just... just um, oh, sure. Go, it, go forward. Just go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We pretend we never had that before. So uh, can you explain what the Unix Heritage Society is and how you came to found it in the first place? Ah. So, of course... Um, I already told you that there was this machine sitting behind in, in a room with a glass window, which was a PDP-11 that could run Unix. And I've gone, I, I just want to play with Unix. And then eventually we did get Unix. And I always wanted to know, well, where did it come from? Because it, it had tantalized me. I had played with it in 1982 and I had years when I didn't have it. And Someone said, I moved to another town and someone said, oh, they're selling a PDP-11. And I went, oh my God, if I bought it, I could try and find a Unix to run on top of it. Now, the, apart from the fact that this was like two fridges worth of equipment and I absolutely know where to put it, but I, I spent weeks and weeks trying to find, well, where do, I, where do I download a Unix from? And of course, Unix is proprietary, you know, copyright AT&T. Um, so again, it was like, I, I have an itch to scratch and I just need to somehow work out how to scratch the itch. And then when 286s and 386s turned up, I remember someone, it was a guy called DeMouse, he had written a PDP-11 simulator. And I went, well, I can't get a real PDP, but I can download the simulator. And I just, I was, Close enough. when you're young and foolish, you just ask around, you become annoying and you irritate people and just keep asking until eventually someone says, here, here is a Unix system, you know, I'll, I'll give you an image, you can FTP it off me. And, and that's sort of where I started, um, that I just wanted to have a Unix system to play with, a real one um, that I could run on my PDP-11 simulator. And in the process, I met people who, who'd said, oh, well, I have this stash of stuff sitting at home on a tape. Um, I can probably copy it and send it to you. And eventually people this was the mid 80s and the pdp 11s were you know now you know getting on you know five or ten years out of date and people wanted to reconnect but it's funny how quickly you get to nostalgia in your life it only takes 10 years and then you start becoming nostalgic for what it was 10 years ago and i i sort of became the nucleus for all of these people who just wanted to help each other out to keep their pdp 11s going and so I first started what was called the PDP Unix Preservation Society um, and then realized that the, the remit was bigger than just one architecture. And then it got renamed to be the, the Unix Heritage Society. Mm, I see. So is it because the systems change so quickly that you get this nostalgia or is that a year, a year in the IT world is 10 years in, in an ordinary life. It's nothing, by right? the time it's you've just, just bought your latest PC, it's already out of date and you should throw it away and buy the yeah, next one. before you leave the shop. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's been so interesting and it's been running for about 30 years now. So I set up the, the, the society uh, in 1994, I think it was. Um, and I, I, I think I'm, 
I'm more of a catalyst. I'm the person who just sets up the mailing list, sets up a website for people to go and get things from, and and every day more people. To, I just like last week I had three or four more enrollments. Someone saying, I used to work at the labs, ATT Bell Labs, and I hear you run a place where I can catch up with people and talk about Unix and join me up. So it's been it's been fun. It's been fun for the last thirty years to keep this thing going. Could you could you maybe explain a bit about what the Heritage Society does today and, and what it offers to people, how they get involved? Yes, it's. Um, I was going to say to begin with, it was people going, well, my PDP power supply is fried and I don't know how to fix it. And someone will go, well, this is what you do. But 30 years on, it's now become, we're a lot of people who are in our 60s and 70s and we just chew the fat and chew the breeze and tell us how wonderful it was back in the early days, you know. <laughs> it's, it's more about just people reminiscing um, and remembering and also trying to, to reconstruct the timeline because sometimes someone would go, you know, when, when, did, this, uh, when did these NROF macros get out to the real world? Um, I know I was using them in Cornell in this year, but were they around? Did someone else have them the year before or the year before that? So there are a lot of serious historians who actually want to trace the history of the development of Unix and its impact on the, the people who used it. And um, they, they see that we can provide answers or internally we just go, you know, when, when did cat minus V is harmful? When was that paper published? You know, what, when did someone go, there's way too many flags on the end of the cat command and we should start railing against too many options to the Unix commands? <laughs> and then LS came along. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, then all of the GNU tools started turning up and, and now you have minus minus. Oh, and, yeah. And it, yes. So. <laughs> and mixed of both. And, and, short and, and minus minus options. You know, five syllable words on the end of, on the end of options. So. <laughs> Okay, I think that, that bridges quite well into the next question. Um, so I, I've acquired loads of magazines from the, the 90s and I think actually some from the 80s um, talking about Unix and its development. Um, and the most fascinating thing about going through these is all of the adverts and all the things people are trying to sell. Mm -hmm. um, and there's the two things I've really taken away from this. One is the, just the breadth of Unix Unices that were for sale uh, targeting home computers or businesses. And the other are companies talking about doing ports. And there's an ad, and I can't remember who it's by, and they talked about, they said, we've done 500 Unix ports. And I've, I have no basis for what that actually means because I, I don't think there've been 500 distinct architectures you could port the operating system to. Um, but it makes me wonder if we're doing a good job of preserving the breadth of Unix history or are we just getting focused on the things which are still cool today? I, yeah, okay, I'll answer that question, but just as a side point, you probably should know that at one point in time, Microsoft was the biggest seller of Unix software because they sold Xenix in yeah. the early days. And it's just, you sort of think, if only there was the 286 or the 386, you know, at the point in time when they were developing OS2, you know, Unix could have taken off and it could, but mind you, it would have been, uh, you know, embrace, extinguish, what Microsoft usually does is take a hold of a technology and then wraps themselves around it. Um, but to get back to your question, no, we are doing a terrible job of preserving not just Unix history, but IT history uh, in general. Um, and a lot of it is because of copyrights, proprietary, you know, 
worries. I mean, I have two archives of Unix. I have the public Unix archive on www.tuhs.org slash archive. And here sitting under me in my desk is the hidden Unix archive, which is all the stuff that people over the last 30 years have thrown at me, stuff that I can never release. And I know I'll, I'll go to my grave never being able to release it because it's System 5, System 3, Sonos, Solaris, um, um, Data General, DEC, um, IBM, and there's source code and stuff in there as well. Um, and I'm sure that no one cares about this stuff. But I just worry that there'll be some lawyer somewhere who'll go, just a minute, we own the copyrights to that. And you're putting up on a website for anyone to download and um, tap, tap, tap on the shoulder. No, you shouldn't be doing that. So, yeah, yeah. that's sad. I mean, it's been, it's been wonderful. Microsoft, you know, have released the source code to the early MS-DOSs and, you know, kudos for them. So we, we have to come up with a way where we can capture artifacts, software or hardware, and have some sort of like Library of Congress or the Computer History Museum or whatever, some sort of a remit where we can say, yes, they are still copyright, but there is a legitimate reason that we should be trying to preserve these nuggets of history. I, I understood that that was the role that Internet Archive took. I I saw they they deliberately put things up into under copyright um, to be told to take it down. And then when they're told to take it down, they just put a timer on it until it's out of copyright. Yes, it, it's a legal minefield. Um, and as an individual, yeah. I'm not a, a large organization. Um, TUHS, uh, which is how I call it, is being solely funded by myself for 30 years. And, you know, it's not an organization. It's me sitting at my desk with a mailing list. Um, so, yeah, I don't have the, the funds to fight if a lawyer turns up and says, please don't do that. Uh, okay, I, I understand. I guess you're worried about being... Because um, if they go after the Internet Archive, they have the lawyers. But if they come to you, then... I don't have one. We're <laughs> in trouble. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I, on the other side of this, and it's a question I couldn't figure out how to phrase before, um, there are living computer museums, but there are very few of them. Do you, do you think they're able to offer a valuable place in society? Uh, I guess the answer is yes, and no, the problem is, how do I phrase this? A lot of people like history in general, you know, but not everyone cares about history. And a lot of people do like history. And then the people who like about the history of computing and the history of uh, IT and technology are then the 0.1% of the people who are interested in history. So the answer is, do they provide a... a a useful community service, they do to the to the 0.01% of people who are interested in that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, if you go to a natural history museum, you can take a kid in and look at the dinosaurs, and kids love dinosaurs. But I think if you walked a kid in and looked at a, a, a PDP-7 or a PDP-8, um, I don't think it's going to be that same sort of stimulus that you get out of dinosaur. It's it a different kind of dinosaur. Kind of dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, yeah. it's definitely interesting because there's there's one of these in the UK and their collection is primarily uh, home computers. Yep. Yep. And it's difficult to acquire the... It's difficult to acquire the more important artifacts, the ones that might not have been as popular, you know, in terms of scale, but actually drove the entire world. Yes. 
Um, and I, I find it hard because a living computer museum does not scale inherently. Um, I know the, the computer museum in Seattle is doing a great job of bringing people onto old computers and that's how you can get on a TOPS 20 system if you want to. Um, but I, I, I would love to see more of these or at least more physical preservation of the things we've had. Uh, because the digital side is almost trivial compared to keeping computers <laughs> the size of a fridge. And, and and to touch on what you just said, I made a conscious decision 30 years ago that I would not collect hardware because it, I just knew that <laughs> I know how friends or and, and uh, people I know who do that side of things and they have you know trailer loads of, of artifacts and they have to worry about recapping and uh, getting their capacitors working and not blowing them when they first turn them on and it's it's uh it's a order or two of magnitudes hard much harder work to deal with the hardware side of things than the software side of things yeah, yeah the software could run an emulator but the hardware is much more sexy uh you know sexy. <laughs> that, that too yeah it, it's funny because I, I mean, think of i think of transport yeah. museums a lot because there's there's one near to where i live and i think transport museums almost have it easier than us because if you keep the car inside the building it doesn't rust but our the electronics literally explode when they're sat exactly um, there is decay yeah and and kids love a giant steam engine whereas i still can't imagine a child being that excited about um a pdp 11 in the way that i would be i mean i was i was into apple twos way back in the day and you know the games were so much fun but i think if you put a kid who's used to you know a switch or anything these days in front of an apple two game or a commodore 64 game i'm sure they would go the, the I can see the pixels. I mean, literally, the pixels are three centimeters by three centimeters, and it's it's terrible. Where's where's the where's the garage shading? Where's the ray tracing? I should be able to. You know, where's the three D sound? Special <laughs> effects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, I mean, future children will look at our hardware nowadays and say, "Oh my God, what kind of ancient hardware you were using?" And this is just you know a generational uh, thing. But um, so the the first time that I was being made aware about the Unix Heritage Society was uh, about um, a couple of years ago when Warner Losh posted something. Uh, he's, I guess, yes, very active yes. in that uh, society as well. And so he had some kind of nice uh, interactions with uh, also coming back into the operating system, FreeBSD nowadays. Um, so my question there is, how do the archives of old obsolete software help people actually developing or using operating systems today? Uh, and this is a question that I'm just trying to think of, again, I'm trying to think of a good way to answer it. I think it's not the code itself that's important. It's the ideas that the code embodies. And it's the way that people develop the code. And it's all about, I mean, what makes Unix so amazing is not a piece of code at this particular point in time or any particular point in time it's the ideas and the technologies that that are embodied so you know if we go back to 1973 when pipes were invented and all of a sudden you've got said and grep and unique and and cut and all of these amazing filter tools and that's what makes this old stuff interesting and if you go back and you think how did they get this to run on a machine with less than 64 kilobytes of RAM? It's, that's the sort of thing that, that's interesting. It's not so much about what these hundred lines of code could do. It's just 
about what the ideas that were embodied in those lines of code. So the answer to your question is, does this, does looking at the old software help in any way? Probably not at all. <laughs> well, sometimes finding bugs is also interesting. Or recently when we had people look at uh, why does this code in this particular instance run so slow on uh, multi-core CPU, then you have to go back, oh, look at the old constants yes. in uh, that code. That magic numbers and everything. Figuring out oh, it's the there. architecture yeah. capabilities. Um, yeah. And so we have to go back to there and figure out, okay, why is it the way it was today? And how do we change it to make it more, I don't know, scalable or handle more input or something? So that's interesting to remember what's, why is it important? I love the phrase technical debt, which is like this accumulation of, yeah, of it's very everything we've done in the past and no one writes down why anywhere that it was done. Um, touching slightly on, on that question, um, I mean, right now we're suffering through, because I was also a cybersecurity uh, lecturer, and you know, in the last uh, 18 months or so, we've, we've been getting into supply chain attacks uh, where you know, one of your components is subverted and then all of a sudden everything you build on top of it. And there's a great XKCD uh, cartoon called Dependencies where they say you know, the whole of the IT world is built on all yeah. of these <laughs> towers of software and there's this one little component that's been looked after by a person in the basement for the past 10 years, holding it all up. Um, so and that reminded me of a paper that Ken Thompson, you know, one of the original Unix developers, wrote in 94 where, uh, 1984, I should say, where he modified the C compiler so that whenever it compiled the login program, it put a backdoor in the login program so that you could log in without a password. And then he modified the compiler to check when the compiler was being compiled to also install the backdoor of the login into it. So once you did it, you could inspect the, the source code of the C compiler and the backdoor would always get um, passed on every time you compiled, even though it was never in the source code. So he presaged the idea of a supply chain attack way, way back in 1984. So it's this, we, it's the ideas of our elders and what they were thinking and, and, and what they embodied in our code is, is much more important than the code itself. And it's interesting you bring this up. There was a, a talk at EuroBSDCon um, last, uh, this month. I'm just going to say I can't remember weeks anymore. Um, and the, the presenter of the talk took uh, this original idea from Ken Thompson and applied it to Make because Make is built with Make. Yeah. And I managed to inject um, a backdoor into make so that when you build stuff with make, it will inject backdoors ah, into the programs you build with cool. make. And also it will propagate the backdoor through makes building right. itself. <laughs> yes, it's lovely, isn't it? It's great fun. Took it one step further, yeah. <laughs> he, he also had a pro an approach for figuring out um, if your compiler had been backdoored. And it was explained to me at the social function that I did not understand it. Um, but it might... Uh, it might be worth reading his slides when they become available and you can see how you might detect these sort of backdoors uh, or also how you might apply them to other other projects. I think one of the reasons why I was I got into building CPUs out of TTL was at least I know that um, I put the CPU together so there's no way there can be a backdoor. But now thinking about it, there's no reason why there can't be a backdoor in the ROM chip that I chose to one of the components uh, <laughs> so unless we go and mine our, mine our own silicon and build our own chips from scratch then you know where do you stop where do you stop it, it's elephants all the way down unfortunately yes um okay um 
So do you have anything else you would like to add, Warren? Yeah, I, I wanted to touch on the fact that, um, I mean, I'm old, um, relatively speaking. Um, so I came from the 80s when you either bought the software or you had to pay, you know, shareware or you pirated it. And just to see the rise to, when, to go through uh, Minix, which was copyright Prentice Hall, but then became open source, and then 386 BSD. And of course, I lived through the uh, free the, the 4.4 BSD, if anyone remembers, when BSD 4.4 was held up. And then 386 BSD, and then finally the free and net BSDs and open BSDs to get to a point where we now live in an open source culture. And it's just so amazing when I go, oh, I need a solution to a problem. I'll just look on GitHub to find if there's any you know source I can download to do it. And if not, there'll be somewhere in that someone's already done it for me. And all of my tools, you know, I, I sit in front of a desktop where every single tool I use costs me nothing to get. Um, so mm. it's just been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful arc from having payware and shareware to the point where 100% of what I have is now completely open source. And it's not just the free as in money, but free as in I can look at it, study it, find out how it works and offer up improvements. It's Right. Yeah, I think we take that for granted sometimes, but knowing where this came from and it wasn't always been yep. that way, yep. that needs a reminder uh, every other day. I've got one, so more, I've got one more thing. I, wrote, I typed in all my answers to your questions and I printed it out and then I remembered the last thing I should have said is do backups and do more backups. <laughs> and where you've got backups of your backups, then take a backup of your backup and put it somewhere else. The only reason that... <laughs> the Unix Heritage Society has ever worked is that people have said, oh, I've got a 1600 BPI tape sitting in a cupboard somewhere, and, you know, an eight inch, uh, uh, an eight track tape. Um, with that software, I'm sure I can dig it out. Now, who do we get to read it? Someone else somewhere, oh, I've still got a nine track tape uh, that, I can, you know, uh, that I can read it. Um, and we wouldn't have recovered so many artifacts um, unless someone had squirreled away stuff. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about the, like before the first edition of Unix, which was PDP 11 based, um, Ken and Dennis and the guys had bought, oh, had, had used a PDP 7 to develop Unix. And for years, there was like a single sheet of paper with some source code on it that uh, Dennis had. And then only a couple of years ago, someone went, just a minute, I've got a folder somewhere at home that's got PDP 7 stuff on it. Hallelujah, it was the source code, but only half the source code. We actually had the kernel and we had half of the, the application uh, the application source code. So we could build a sort of a PDP-7 operating system. And then unfortunately, um, oh, an, uh, another IT person had passed away and in their estate, they found the other half of the, of the printout. So I know, so, and, but of course it's complete Sheer luck, you know, that could have been thrown away in the bin mm. and we would have yeah. been lost to history. So please, all I can say is do as many backups as you can. And even if you think what you're doing today is completely irrelevant because maybe in 20 or 30 years, it might be one of those things that is really important to the people in the future. Yeah, put it on the internet, give it to someone who yep. appreciates it and preserves it in some way, the backup of the backup, as you said, yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you for coming on the show, Warren. That was that was really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for a great conversation.